Hi, I am Joseph. And I am Eleni. And, and we, we are, are the hosts of Microbes in Us. This podcast brings together the people that work tirelessly to uncover and understand the microbial world, its secrets, its complexity, and its vibrancy. And it will show us how microbes can shape, break, and make our human world. From prehistoric times, all the way to the modern world around us. We hope you enjoy and share this podcast. Hi everyone, welcome to episode 11 of our Microbes and Us series. If you're new here, welcome. And if you listened to our episode before, today is like no other. I have with me science integrity detective, Dr. Elizabeth Pick. In this episode, we are going to talk about the backbone of research, being true and honest about your methods and results, otherwise not fabricating or falsifying your data, how to spot misconduct and how to avoid it. With more than 20 years of experience as a scientist and three years as an integrity consultant, Dr. Bick was winner of the famous 2022 Special Merit Award for all her tireless work on campaigning and teaching about correct practices in research. Enough from me now, let's go and meet our guest, Dr. Elizabeth Bick. So my first question to you is, how did you get where you are now? I am a uh, microbiologist. Uh, I've been uh, trained as a microbiologist in the Netherlands. I did my PhD there. I um, worked at uh, the National Institute of Health in the Netherlands, um, and I uh, worked at a hospital in the Netherlands, and then I moved to the US. I worked 15 years at Stanford, working in the, in the microbiome field, so looking at which bacteria live inside uh, human bodies and dolphin bodies. During that time, I became interested in science integrity, so not just looking at microbiology papers, but also learning about uh, science fraud and misconduct and things like that. And that was just a very interesting topic. And I just thought, oh, let's, let's see if somebody plagiarized one of my papers because plagiarism is a, is a form of misconduct. So I chose a sentence and I put that in Google Scholar between quotes and did not only find my own paper, but also another paper that had taken my sentence, had stolen my sentence for, for their paper. And that, I think if that had not happened, I would not have been a science integrity consultant because that sort of changed my life. I guess I was angry that somebody stole my sentence and I started looking into that, found more and more examples of plagiarism. Then by another accident, I found an example of image duplication and I discovered that I'm apparently pretty good in recognizing duplications in scientific photos. Mm -hmm. So I started doing that as a hobby. And three years ago, I decided to do that full-time. So I am now full-time looking at science papers for image duplications. That's sort of my specialty. And I give a lot of talks about my work and I also am a consultant. So I, you can hire me if you are a scientific publisher or a, an institution to look at such cases of science misconduct. So just before I, I joined this recording, I was just Googling to find out what the concept of scientific integrity is. And it was difficult for me to find a one line or one sentence definition of, mm -hmm. of what it means. In, in your mind, what are some key elements or uh, critical things that can describe scientific integrity? Yeah, it's, that's a good question. And, and it's, there's not an easy answer. So the most important concept is that science should be about finding the truth. I feel that is what science is and that's its core, its essence. And as scientists, we're doing experiments. We hope to learn about a certain pathway or you know, which microbe live in a certain ecosystem, things like that. And we try to 
analyze that to the best we can and we try to record that and we try to publish that and if we if, if people are not honest if people change the results a little bit that would be science misconduct so in the united states science misconduct is defined as one of three things so plagiarism then falsification and fabrication so falsification is where a person does an experiment but for example leaves out certain values mm -hmm. values that don't fit your hypothesis but perhaps like an outlier or change the results so that they pass a threshold and fabrication the third one is where a person completely makes up results so not even does an experiment but just types in some beautiful numbers and uh, makes a beautiful graph without actually doing an experiment so so those th three things are the definition of science misconduct but it's not always clear if you know if, if something is falsification or fabrication i don't think it's a very clear line but um basically if you um if you do a photoshopping in a scientific paper if you make your photo look like there's more cells than there actually were if you just copy and paste a couple of cells in that would be a very clear example of a fabrication and yeah just making up results that never happened i know a couple of examples of uh, scientists that have fabricated data and then they were found and they had a sentence so uh, i know a few that have even gone to to prison for those crimes related to to research misconduct do you have any any, any striking examples yourself uh, I don't think I, I hope I've never <laughs> sent anybody to prison. I don't think it's a crime, at least in most countries, and, and rules might differ between countries. Most severe punishment would be a retraction of a paper or uh, in the United States, a ban to apply for government issues, issued grants like the NIH grants, for example. So you might be banned for two years. And that doesn't seem to be like a very like big punishment. But I've, I, I know that in one particular case where I caught a uh, group leader at a uh, pharmaceutical company, uh, some of their papers had fabricated or like a, um, a photoshopped images mm -hmm. and that person then got fired from the company and that group doesn't exist anymore. So I'm, I'm not sure what happened uh, to them or where they are now or like what happened to the people working in that group, but that seemed to pretty severe punishment so yeah. yeah but in most cases nothing actually happens and that is sometimes frustrating even the papers are not retracted the papers are not corrected they just stay there and uh yeah that's that's just a very sad example that scientific publishing doesn't really want to self-correct unfortunately i found a systematic review from 2009 that um that found that about 2% of scientists admitted to falsify or fabricate of, or <laughs> modify any data at least once. Do you think this figure changed much? And why, if, if, <laughs> if, if at all, it's changed? It, it's, again, not an easy question to answer because um, most scientists will not admit that they did that. Um, and there have been several questionnaires and, and investigations to, to look at what is the percentage of misconduct. I think that's the sort of the, the key question. I would estimate it to, to be between five and 10% based on a big survey that I did of scientific papers with, um, with images, with photos. So I found about 2% of those papers to have intentionally misleading photos. Um, but I do think there it's much easier to, to uh, do falsification or fabrication in a table where, or a line graph where nobody would notice it. So I would estimate it's between five and 10%. Mm -hmm. Um, 
if that this number has gone up, I'm I'm not sure. It it seems that it's going up because especially for images, what I'm specializing in, it's much easier now to change parts of a figure, for example, to to clone a cell and 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 just stamp it a couple of times, make it look like there's more cells in a photo or fewer. Yeah. That that is so much easier to do than 20 years, 30 years ago when, for example, I did my PhD. You had to bring your gels and your your photos to the photographer and you didn't have digital photography so it was just much harder to change it yourself so i do think that digital photography just taking a photo with your cell phone and then being able to to change it on your computer that is something that wasn't possible you know two three decades ago so that has dramatically increased image manipulations but having said that i think it's it always has been easy to to change numbers so i fraud is probably of all times and mm -hmm. as data sets become more complex it's also much harder to know if there was fraud because it's not just you know one photo and one table which is what you might be able to publish 30 years ago but now you have to publish you know, 60 supplemental figures in some papers so data sets and papers are getting much more complex and it's just much harder to to find fraud in the, in in those and so i do think it's it's going up but it's hard to know and and the critical question for me is why do you think there there's ever a need to to fabricate or falsify information do you, <laughs> do we have do you think we we have a, a wrong model in research mm. that um, might um, push this this need to to alter data or images yes i it, it's probably driven by the the pressure to publish which all scientists feel in some way or another and scientists are rewarded if they publish in a high impact journal and if they publish a lot of publications those are the measures that or the parameters that we're measured against right um, any resume that has uh, 10 papers published in science or nature will look really good and and that will increase a person's chance to be hired as a professor for example so are we looking at the wrong measures i do think partially so i do think a paper in in science and nature is something we all want and um and and it's very good but i also think it's not always fair to just look at those parameters so people are rewarded in science for publications um, and science publications are much easier to get accepted if they show positive results. So it's very hard to get a paper accepted in a journal if, if it's only negative results. So people are tempted to change their results into to fit into a particular hypothesis in a particular story to make the results just look better and nicer. And, and we're all used now, right, to, to Instagram filters or whatever. Like we all like to present our results a little bit better than they actually were. We, um, uh, so it's, it seems almost acceptable to do that for your science publications as well. It's not, obviously, we should not cheat, but I think we're all sort of um, tempted in, in going into a direction where we, we change our results to look uh, to make them look a little bit better and that's not good yeah well for me I have been following you uh, for quite a while on, on Twitter and had a moment where I realized that to identify the image contact you really need to interpret the data and know and know the image as well what happens what's the correct controls etc but 
as a as scientists or for example early career scientists that they do need to read a lot of papers to start kickstart the research and do literature reviews and we often fall into a trap of kind of believing the writer because because it's a you know a peer-reviewed article so the question is you know how, how critical do we need to be to to the um to the already published uh, articles out there if we know you know this misconduct is out there <laughs> yeah and it's scary right because if you if you listen to what i'm doing what i'm doing you might actually think that all science is uh, is is misconduct that we cannot trust anything and that that's definitely not the case uh, i would i would say that most science papers are to be trusted but we always should be careful in interpreting the the outcome it's uh, even if a paper is peer reviewed there can still be big flaws in it or even misconduct it's peer review is not a hundred percent guarantee that there's no misconduct peer reviewers are first of all not paid they have limited time it's something they they do as a volunteer job so we cannot really demand from a peer reviewer that they do as good of a job as a, a scientific publisher uh, or an editor at, at the journal should do i do believe there's a big task for scientific publishers to check papers with you know wearing different glasses not just looking at is the science good but could this have been fabricated is there maybe fraudulent data so that i feel that task should be done by the scientific publishers and and only very few publishers actually do that right now they all seem to rely on the unpaid peer reviewers mm -hmm. so it's always good to to read a paper and and be critical. And I think as scientists, we are trained to be critical. We, we we ask the right questions. We want to look at citations. We don't just believe what we read on Twitter. We we are critical and, and that's good. We can read these papers. The big problem is, is often for the general public who is not trained to read papers critically and who tends to believe just what they see. So, um, and in between there, between science papers and and uh, things on Twitter or other social media, there are news reporters who might also tweak the outcome of a paper a little bit more in a, in a different direction than the scientists would want to. So it is very good to be critical, um, but it's there will be papers that look pretty good from the outside where at first glance you think that the data is real and that might have been completely fabricated. And we saw that in the COVID-19 pandemic, there was, uh, for example, a paper on um, this, what we call the Surgery Sphere paper, a company that claimed that they had data from collected from hospitals all over the world, and it turned out that some of their data was uh, seemed to have been fabricated, was completely made up, and that paper got accepted in the Lancet and a companion paper in the New England Journal of Medicine, so very high impact journals, what uh, appeared to be rigorous uh, peer reviewed uh, results, but it wasn't, and and those papers were turned out to be fake and got retracted very soon. So it happens everywhere that people fall for these fake papers. Uh, but luckily, at least these papers were retracted very quickly. But in the meantime, they had, of course, uh, I even tweeted about those papers. So it's easy to fall for these things. You cannot always recognize it. Yeah. But being critical and, and allowing critiques to be paid, uh, to be placed, even post peer review, I think that's that's a good thing. We should, as scientists, be open for critic critiques even after we publish the paper. Uh, it's not set in stone yet, so uh, 
uh, yeah, we should we should always read things and be aware that a, a fraction of papers might be the result of misconduct. Mm-hmm. And uh, another question that I have for you is, let's say we identified a, a misconduct or a false uh, or um, changed data on an image or paper. What do we do? How can we make sure it's taken down or doesn't happen again? Right. So the there are several things you can do. So first of all, well, check and double check. You don't want to falsely accuse, accuse anybody of misconduct. And remember that sometimes uh, a duplication, if it's not Photoshopping, if it's just a duplication, it could be an honest error. So that's that's important to keep in mind. So officially you should write to the editor-in-chief of the journal in which it was published. If it's just one paper, if it's a set of papers and you, you doubt that these papers are real, you could also write to the uh, research integrity officer of the university or the other institution where the research was conducted. So uh, that's the official way. Some people could even write a letter to the editor that gets published, but that's a very slow process. And that could take years to even get it published. And then you might get a response from the author can take another year. So that's, that's I feel, not really something that fits in, in the, 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 the speed at which we're living now. Um, I, have, I have reported many papers. So I've reported a, an initial set when I started to do this work, I reported a set of 800 papers to the editors of, of those journals. And I, uh, after five years, waiting five years and sometimes reminding the editors to do something, about 60% of these papers had still not been corrected or retracted. So these are all were papers with duplications in the paper, like either errors or, or perhaps uh, falsification or fabrication. So 60% of the papers, two, about two thirds almost, had not been acted upon. So it's, editors are very slow to respond. And so that made me very frustrated. So what I'm currently doing, I want to warn the readers. I don't want definitely to, you know, to publish, to punish the, the, the authors. I want to warn the reader that there might be a problem with the paper. So I post all my papers that I'm finding on poppeer.com, which is a website where you can leave a critique you can do it anonymously or under your full name i do it under my full name uh, you can say hey figure two con- appears to contain an area that i see twice or figure 2a overlaps with figure 3b and here's a little in- illustration of what i'm seeing and then you can alert the authors and hope that they respond normally they don't respond but uh, at least I can now warn all readers because you can, Papier also comes with a plugin that you can install. So you can see that somebody left a paper, uh, left a review on a particular paper if you have the Papier plugin installed. So I would recommend to everybody to install that and just see if there was a discussion about a certain paper. So it's it's just a great platform to leave, to quickly leave comments, to warn people. It's also moderated. You cannot just say, I think this is misconduct. You have to word it as objectively and scientifically. We can do that as scientists as possible. So you can say that uh, two papers, two images appear to overlap, or you can say that maybe you think that the method that the authors chose was not the correct method, and but you cannot make any accusations. So it's moderated. It that keeps it all polite and scientific and objective. And uh, I think that is currently the best platform we have to raise concerns. 
just to finish up, um, do you have any any other things that you wanted to mention or for perhaps any any tips for our early career scientists? Yeah, so two tips. Again, uh, like we just discussed, if you see something, say something. If you suspect that you have found an error or even misconduct in a paper, use Papier or, or other platforms, Twitter even, to politely and objectively raise concerns. Again, keep it, keep it nice, don't accuse anybody. Uh, but yeah, so don't doubt yourself uh, as I did when I was early career, like you might've actually found uh, an error or a bug <laughs> in, a, in a program or something like that, raise concerns. And secondly, know that misconduct is not normal. You, I've heard of situations where people work in a lab let's say with a bullying professor, a professor who's a, a nasty person who forces you to tweak results. And, and the professor might tell you, oh, this is how everybody does science, but that's not the case. Like they are in a position of power and you depend on them for your career. So it's, it's easy to, to give in to this pressure and to change results and, and to present positive results to your professor because you want to please your professor and you're so dependent on them for the rest of your career. But it is not a normal situation. So my advice would be if you are in such a lab where you feel the pressure to, or are even told to tweak results or to change them or fabricate results, this is not a normal situation. Get out of there if you can and try to talk to a person, but also be aware if you, are raising concerns, you could talk, for example, with the research integrity officer at your institution or the ombudsperson. But as a junior person, unfortunately, you are not in a situation where you're likely to win. Um, at, many pro at many institutions, a professor still has more power than an early career uh, graduate student, for example, and you might lose this battle. And this is not how it should be, but unfortunately, this is how it is. But collect as much evidence as you can. For example, screenshots of emails, uh, get things in writing, like, oh, as we agreed, um, you asked me to, to make a gel that looked like this, like, and have, like, if you have it in writing, you will have a little bit more evidence for these things. And yeah, get out of that lab that's that's the only advice I can I can give it's not a normal situation and so get into a better lab yeah um and I guess with that we can finish up the episode I I just wanted to say uh you're very active on Twitter so if everyone wants to follow up what you do and your work you can just search my name Elizabeth Bick and Elizabeth is with an S B-I-K is my last name and you're also um a blog writer as well so you have your uh, own science integrity digest blog that he yeah. writes about um or maybe summarizing in a, in a longer evidence poll why um you you found miscontact in the situations that's right yeah so so thank you very much for your time and i guess we can follow up a discussion on twitter if anyone has any questions please yeah please do thank you so much for having me i was my pleasure to be here. You've been listening to the podcast Microbes and Us. Hit the follow button to never miss an episode and follow us on social media on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at Fems Micro and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Fems Microbiology. See you in our next episode. <laughs>